Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad on the topic, Prophets of Doom, Should We Listen to Them? This May 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Yeah, I've already made my apologies. Just a bit of a background before I get into the gist of the talk. Uh, this is because I got the call yesterday afternoon from Arlette. I hadn't prepared anything, and uh, because I sometimes drop out of Friday night events and leave Arlette by herself here, I thought, well, I, I, I owe her a favour. Um, so I said I'll do the talk. I haven't really prepared in depth for the specific topic, prophets of doom. Should we listen to them? Uh, this is basically going to be a trial run for the talk I'm going to be given, giving at uh, Guardians on the um, 10th of June. Uh, the gist of the talk, I'm going to look at prophets in general, a bit of uh, criteria of what characteristics belong to a true prophet, history of the prophets in the Old Testament, some specific examples like the career of Elijah, Jeremiah, etc., but interspersed with all that, and probably concluding all that, I'll make some what I would call political comments. Because really what I'm focused on, uh, primarily, ultimately, what this is heading towards, is how do we respond to the present crisis in the world? Which, of course, you know is very, it's manifold. It's universal and it's manifold, meaning it's across the entire world and there's various dimensions about it. Um, and we're gonna, I want to try and to avoid to lead us to avoid the extremes. The first extreme is false optimism, where you get prophets like in Jeremiah's time who announce there is no problem. What are we worried about? Everything is fine. Okay, This was an opposition, deliberate opposition to Jeremiah's preaching and warnings. And the other extreme, which is probably um, a, a much greater, a much smaller minority, but uh, a subtle temptation and error that good people could naturally fall into if we're not aware, if we don't become rather acute in our thinking. And that is to go to the other extreme and say, everything is so bad that we basically just run for the hills mentality. Let's just, you know, turn our back, take up our tent, and let's just flee. Now, that can be very tempting option, and some take up that option. Now, I want to try and lead us to a middle ground, which avoids false optimism, whereby we are realistic, but put forward a, an approach where we're not just turning our back and running for the hills, because I believe that it's counterproductive. I actually believe that such a response, that might be helpful for individuals and their families even, it's not helpful to the overall cause. And really, we don't find this approach ordinarily called by God. That's not how God calls people to normally respond to great crises. All right. So looking at, let's go through a, just a run through in general about prophets, etc., etc. Well, the word prophet Actually, you find it in the Old Testament. It's the word Nabi, which is still used today in the Middle East. 
Uh, it's, it's an Arabic word as well. It means prophet. Now, prophets were considered the mouthpieces of God. And in ancient Israel, Israel, there were three pillars in Israel that we're all basically familiar with. And that is, there was the priesthood, the kingly line, the king, the priesthood, and the prophets. And if you're all familiar with Christ and what he said about himself, which is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Christ said that, he was embodying all those three traditional institutions in ancient Israel in himself, in his own person. So in reality, ancient Israel was a type, a prefigurement of Christ himself. Because the king represented the way, the government. The life is represented by the priesthood. And the truth is represented by the prophets. Now, when we talk about prophets, we basically start off with Moses. Then we have Aaron. Miriam, Deborah, yes, there were female prophets as well. A minority, but they certainly existed. Then we go through Samuel, Nathan, Elijah, Elisha. Now, we call them, we categorise these prophets as the former prophets or the original ones. They didn't leave any writings, of course, of course Moses did, uh, but the rest didn't leave any specific writings though we do have writings about them. Obviously, Elijah. We read about him in the third book of Kings. He didn't write about himself, but others did record what he did. The next classification are the classical prophets, the literary prophets and the latter prophets. The first literary prophets, that is prophets who wrote down their own prophecies, were Amos and Hosea. That's 8th century BC. The line of prophets, and I'll go through the prophets in chronological order, from Moses through to the 5th century BC. The line of prophets extends from Moses to Malachi, that is from the 13th to the 5th century BC. I'll do that sometime later. There are three the types of prophets can be categorised. There's categories and subcategories here. We have first one, first subcategory are itinerant prophets who travelled in groups from place to place. We then have the cultic or temple prophets, prophets that proclaimed at the site of the temple, which you know is the holiest site in ancient Israel. And then we have the court prophets, prophets who advise the king. Now, out of those three, probably the most dubious characters were the court prophets. Who could, who could guess why? Who has it a guess? Why you would, if you're going to test the spirits here, so to speak, as to which category were the, were the ones you would normally trust or otherwise, which of these categories do you think would be the ones you would be uh, most suspicious of? Court prophets. Yes, why? Because um, they told them what they paid for. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, they, they basically prophesied and told the king what was good for the what the king wanted to hear. Not necessarily what was good for the king or good for Israel, 
or what the, what the king would like to have heard. Okay? And you have that same problem throughout church history as well. The classical court bishop, for example, who would be you know, more interested in doing the will of the king rather than the will of the church. And that was a problem that in particular plagued France in the 17th century with Richelieu and Mazarin, and those cardinals, for example. All right. Now, there were also the free prophets. The free prophets, their king was Yahweh. And they stood at the margins looking at what was happening in Israel. Now, the, the famous prophets, the ones that we read about, know so well in the Old Testament, mostly come from this category of free prophets. They were called, they were set apart, and they focused, they looked at Israel, they saw what was wrong, and they proclaimed a message to remedy what was wrong. They also made predictions about the future, doom and gloom on Israel or Judah, predictions about the Messiah, which are very valuable, and we'll touch on some of them tonight. They were concerned, however, yes, when we mean prophets, I must dispel in the definition here one common idea. Most people in the streets, if you, if you ask them what is a prophet, they would say, well, it's someone who predicts the future, who engages in prophecy. That is the common definition. But that is an extremely, really narrow definition. That was only one aspect of the work of authentic prophets. And it was really a, not the central function of the prophets. The central function of the prophets were to proclaim the will of God at that time for the people of God. They focused on more the contemporary situation than the future situation. Of course, there were many prophets who were focused at times on future events and prophesied future events and prophesied concerning the Messiah. That's part of it. But really their message was a very traditional and conservative message. And the core of that message was Israel. When I mean Israel, I mean the whole kingdom, not just the northern kingdom. Israel before the division. Israel and Judah. Come back to the original covenant with Yahweh. Come back to the original covenant with God. And covenants, whether you talk about the one with Adam, which was with a family, or the one, sorry, Adam was with the married couple, and Noah with a family, and Abraham with a tribe, and Moses with a nation, and David with a kingdom, the core of all those covenants was the same. I am your God, and you are my people. And we actually hear that reflected one of the things that Christ himself says to Mary Magdalene, you know, or in the scriptures after his resurrection, this was a message for the disciples, go and tell them, you know, that I go back to my God and your God and my Father and your Father. That's echoing the original covenant. I am your God and you are my people. And that is what was essentially being breached century after century after century during this period. 
And the mission of the prophet was to recall Israel to the original covenant. Okay. I'll just do now a systematic reading of the prophets, their names, and the years that they were active, and where they focused their attention on. And I'll do this briefly, because each one of these prophets is a talk in themselves. We have Elijah, which means Yahweh is Lord, Eliyah, right? Yahweh is Eli, Yahweh is Lord, as against Baal. From 874 to 846 BC, and his work was essentially in the northern kingdom, Israel. Eliseus was his successor. Eliseus means God is salvation. And he prophesied from 848, so he overlapped two years with Elijah, to an unknown period. We're not exactly sure how when he ended his uh, prophetic mission. Also prophesying to Israel. Jonah means dove, and he was a prophet from 785 to 750 BC. And the only prophet that was sent to Gentile peoples, Nineveh. Okay, and in that sense, he was a type of Christ because he came from the northern part of the northern kingdom as Christ came from Galilee. And they both had a message ultimately for the Gentile peoples. Amos, the original prophet of doom, he's actually formerly called the prophet of doom. Amos means burden bearer from 752 BC to again to an unknown date prophesying to Israel. Hosea means salvation from 755 to 715 BC, prophesying to Israel. The prophets of Judah were Obadiah, which means servant of the Lord, 10 years from 841 to 831 BC. He prophesied concerning Edom, which was uh, the next door neighbour to Judah. They were cousins of, of the uh, Israelites, because the Edomites descended from Esau, who was, of course, brother to Jacob. We have Micah, which means who was like Yahweh, 735 to 750 BC, prophesied to Judah. Isaiah, one of the four greatest prophets, Isaiah means Jehovah is salvation, 740 to 680 BC, prophesied to Judah. Nahum means consolation, from 650 to 620 BC, prophesied concerning Nineveh. Zephaniah, which means the Lord hides, from 640 to 620 BC, prophesied to Judah. Jeremiah, the Lord exalts, 627 to 585 BC, prophesied to Judah, another of the four greatest prophets. Habakkuk, embracer, 607 to 604 BC, prophesied to Judah. Then we have the prophets of the captivity in Babylon. These were prophets in Babylon. Uh, They were Judeans who were prophesying to the Jews in Babylon in captivity. Ezekiel, which means God strengthens, 592 to 570 BC. And Daniel, which means God is my judge, 606 to 536 BC in Babylon. That's probably not the period of his um, prophecy. That's his whole life, length of his life. Zechariah, Yahweh remembers, 520 to 518 BC, 
prophesied to Judah. Then you have the final set of prophets to the united remnant. This is when the, the, when the Jews are freed from Babylon and they return back slowly in dribs and drabs to the Holy Land. And they were Haggai, which means my feast, 520 BC to an unknown date, and Malachi, my messenger, from 5, 450 to 430 BC. And he prophesied to Judah. After that period, we don't get another formal prophet to Israel until who and when? Yeah, that's right, so John the Baptist. So there's a long period of 400 years uh, of no new prophet and uh, also <coughs> of a very great importance, or great significance to the Judeans as they rebuilt their temple. They also didn't have the presence of God in the Holy of Holies in the Second Temple period. Okay, this is another talk altogether which I've given in the past. But the first temple, what was the most outstanding feature in the Holy of Holies, was the presence of God dwelling above the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the second, second temple didn't have either of them. The second temple didn't have an Ark of the Covenant and didn't have the glory presence of God enthroned above the Ark. And they had no prophets as well. I read a very good book at the beginning of this year, uh, by Abbot Ricciotti on the life of Christ and he gives a very detailed explanation of, of the condition of Israel at the time Christ was born and when Christ's public mission began. It, really, it was a period of spiritual and intellectual decadence where the, the Pharisaical and Sadducean classes had you know, led themselves primarily and many of the people of Israel to be focused on legalistic Minutiae and get all entangled in the letter of the law and strictness for strictness sake and the law for the law, law's sake rather than forgetting about charity and mercy and etc. Which, of course, you read all about that in the Gospels. That's the major criticism that Christ issued against them. So, some characteristics of an authentic prophet now they all received a call, which is their vocation. They are set apart as to be an instrument of Yahweh. Now, any type of person could be a prophet. There's no prerequisite that you had to be a male or a female or intelligent or a priest or whatever. Anyone was liable to be called in theory. Eliseus was a farmer. Amos was a shepherd. Isaiah was a nobleman. Jeremiah and Ezekiel were priests, as well as some women, Miriam, Deborah, Hulda. They were conscious of their call, like Moses, Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. A call, however, that was often not recognised. Now, that's, that's important, and you can understand um, to some extent why. Christ said it himself, you're never a prophet in your own home. Some of these men were called from obscurity, and from menial vocation, menial employment, so they weren't taken seriously. Some of them were called very young, like Jeremiah, who was only 18 when he was called. These things tended to mitigate against you know, them being accepted by the mainstream. And of course, probably the main reason why they didn't achieve popular acceptance 
particularly by the ruling class or the, the kingly class, etc., was because their message was <laughs> um, doom and gloom. Okay? Without, though, a pessimism. And that's what's important here. <clears throat> they had a religious experience. They usually heard a voice or received a vision. Isaiah's one is the most dramatic. You know, if you read in his account in chapter 6, basically he's just in the temple and then the whole scene opens up and he beholds God. And this is what we call a theophany. That's not God as he is in his essence, because if we saw him face to face, we'd just disappear you know, and be annihilated. But um, he saw God being worshipped in this theophany by angels, and that's where we get the holy, holy, holy from, which we have in our liturgy. Um, now, important, they do not pronounce new, new teaching. Okay, remember that. I said they're conservatives, they're traditionalists. They're not introducing a new doctrine. If they were, they would have raised the suspicions of their audience, even higher than the suspicions already were. But they are reminding people of the original covenant, as I said earlier. Their sayings, oracles, prophecies rest in the authority of God. For example, they're not to, to make it clear that they're not preaching their own message. They preface their message, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord. They are passionate people, dramatic and extraordinary preachers using all methods of oratory. They confront injustice and then they and at the same time bring hope. They are people who see what is, but what should be and what can be. There can be false prophets, and what distinguishes what characterizes false prophets they are self-appointed, ambitious, seekers of material gain or worldly fame. On the contrary, the true prophet has integrity of life, fidelity to Mosaic doctrine, testimony of prophecies which uh, become manifestly true even in their own time. Performance of signs is very important. Um, and I use this as a case in point in current-day current uh, apologetics, for example. If you have a look at um, the doctrine of Calvin, he teaches that after the New Testament period, there were meant to be no more miracles. Okay? So he discounts the possibility of all miracles after the apostolic age. And one can be cynical and say, well, that's because he and his followers could not produce any to verify their calling, their mission. In eight or nine years, we're going to get the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. There'll be all, I'm sure, a hullabaloo about it and a, an excitement and a celebration in many quarters. And there'll be a free focus on these men, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Cranmer, etc. And then we ask the question, were they really prophetic voices? Were they really called and sent by God? Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Well, of course. But what? How do we? How do we come to that conclusion? What, we can apply some of the tests that can be applied to dis, that were applied to discern true and false prophets in the Old Testament to these gentlemen as well. You don't get contradiction between the prophets of the Old Testament. 
you get contradiction between the alleged prophets of the 16th century. You get miracles. You get sorry, prophecies that are not only in distant times, for the distant future time, but prophecies that come that are that are made and fulfilled contemporaneous to their own mission, that verify their mission. They do signs. They do miracles that verify their mission. It's the same, when this means sign, that's a word for miracle. It's the same word that St. John uses in his Gospel with respect to the miracles of Christ. They're not miracles just to help people. They're signs because people are supposed to read these miracles and say, ah, this man is truly sent by God. And when we read the New Testament accounts concerning Christ, often the response is, when it's favourable, of this, God has sent a new what into the world? A new prophet into the world, because he was doing miracles. So it's expected that you know of an authentic prophet that they would do miracles. And we come back to the critical of the 16th century uh, movement of the Reformation and ask for where are their miracles? Where are their prophecies? Where is their consistency? Where is their integrity of life? compared to Old Testament prophets and real saints in the New Testament era. Yes. Robert, um, you say to have a wide, uh, the prophets, prophets are a wide, take a wide view. So what do you call, say, for example, the book of Ecclesiastes? Is that a prophet? Like to say things like two heads are better than one, the world, the, the, everything is vain. Is that is that something prophetic in itself? I mean, it's not about the future, but it's something about now. It's something about now, but what characterises the prophets is a, is a mission that's that's urgent. There's a crisis, and they're sent to deal with the crisis. And the, with respect to the 20th century, and I'm jumping the gun here, but with respect to the 20th century, where do we get something similar? Fatima. Fatima, exactly right. Fatima, Our Lady is Our Lady. Okay. She's not officially a prophet, but in that instance, in those apparitions, she is acting as a prophet. We have a gigantic crisis in the world, the greatest war in world history, and that's only one of the aspect of the crisis. That's a consequence of other crises that preceded it, the massive anti-clericalism of the 19th century and the growing secularisation and the, the growing... You know, cynicism and criticism and scientism that's aimed at being atheistic, etc. Uh, but she appears and she's giving us a message that helps us understand why we have this disaster and a solution for the disaster. But she also has a, in, in part of the overall message, when we look at it in its fullness, there are dire warnings. There's doom and gloom. The war is a punishment for sin, and if people don't stop sinning, there will be another war, a greater war, beginning in the reign of Pius XI. Now, in 1917, as if people wanted to hear that there's going to be an even worse war than what they were going through then. Because in October, for example, 1917, the period of the... Um, Fatima apparitions, if you understand, if you, if you overlay it with the history of World War One, 
I'll only appears in, uh, firstly, a year before, in 1916, which chorus corresponds with the Battle of the Somme, which was a total disaster for the British and their allies. Total disaster. They gain only about six kilometres at the cost of both sides, 550,000 killed. That's, that, you've also got the Battle of Verdun, where at the end of that campaign from February to November 1916, 320,000 and 280,000, 320,000 French and 280,000 German casualties. No territory is gained in the end, it's stalemate. So that's when the first apparition appears. Then in May 1917, the French launched what they claimed will be their final offensive to break the Germans, a total disaster, 200,000 killed, no one, no gain of territory. That was the Nivelles Offensive. Led to a mutiny of the French army on the Western Front. And then in October 1917, you have the British Offensive at Passchendaele, which was the worst of all the fighting. You know, where just as a preliminary softening up period, the British dropped three million bombs on the German defences, right? Shelled three million. At Verdun, by the way, the Germans dropped 23, 23 million shells on the French fortifications and by the end of it had gained no extra territory. This is, our ladies appearing in this great catastrophe and saying there's going to be a worse war in the reign of Pius XI. Now, how much worse could it be? So it was a message that was unpopular and unbelievable. And it was a message of doom and gloom because the world's in big trouble for multiple reasons. But what else was part of the message? Is it just doom and gloom? It's, a message, it's, it's essentially in the end a message of hope. It's not a message of despair. It's a message of reality. The world's in a shocking condition. And... There are many reasons why. There's no false optimism. And, and part of the message is dire. And it's and there's worse to come. But what is the solution? Go run for the hills? No. The solution is pray the rosary every day. Prayer and penance. The gospel message. Prayer and penance. And this is the way to peace in the world. And my immaculate heart will triumph. So it's a classic you look at it, the overall message fits the prophetic model perfectly. It is the great prophecy of the 20th century. She is the great prophet of the 20th century and the, issuing us the great prophecy of the 20th century. And it, you can believe it. You can believe it because of, it satisfies these essential criteria. Realistic without being pessimistic. Doom and gloom, but retaining hope. That's exactly what the prophets were on about in ancient Israel. They offered solutions and said, if you do this, you will be spared. You will be saved. Classic example, 701 BC, the Assyrians have totally annihilated Israel in the northern kingdom 20 years before, ripped out the 10 northern tribes, shot them to the other side of the Tigris River and dumped them in, a, in what would be modern-day Iran today, never to be heard of again. Then they descend on Jerusalem in the time of, um, I think it's, it's King Hezekiah, and Jerusalem is completely surrounded 
And Isaiah says to the king, don't bother with any alliances with anybody, just trust in Yahweh. And on a rare occasion, the king does. And what happens to the army of Sennacherib? Is encircled Jerusalem, a plague break breaks out, decimates the army, the army has to retreat. Jerusalem is spared for another 114 years. So it was dire, but the destruction doesn't have to occur because it's conditional. It's conditional on how we respond to the prophecy. And because they responded well, they were spared. Some, I'm jumping ahead of myself, I'm sorry, um, but some concerns of the prophets in general and related to today, relate these to today's situation. And then you come to the book of Ecclesiasticus, which is another beautiful saying, which says, there is nothing new under the sun. That's in the book of Sirach. So when you read this, just, just do, let's transport it to the contemporary scene. Injustices, Jer- Jeremiah and Micah, and these, this is just a touch. You can... There's hundreds of more examples than what I'm giving here. Jeremiah and Micah preached against general injustices in society. Elias and Elysius, among others, among all of them really, focused on the apostasy of the people of God. Uh, Baal worship in particular, being infected from the Canaanites, the Phoenicians in the north. Translate to today, we've got a monstrous apostasy in every circle today. You can imagine. A prophecy against Amos prophesies against the nations that surround Israel. You know, that they will fall because of their vices and their sins. Amos also prophesied against formalism in religion, where we get focused on externals and forget the internal. Remembering that authentic religion, the externals are there to ultimately serve the internal, to lead us to a greater interior life and prayer life and spiritual life and life of charity, hope, faith, etc. We just want to engage in formalism, like make sure you do the sacrifice right, the burnt offerings right, the holocausts right, you know, and then you forget about the greater things like mercy and charity, etc. You're in big trouble. And Amos also, among the other prophets, railed against immorality. Do you notice a little bit of immorality in today's society here and there? You know, like, uh, okay, okay. Jeremiah warned against, it warned Israel against false alliances. Okay? Because that was a lack of faith on their part. And to ally themselves with people, nations who will be treacherous. But also, what's not mentioned here, another type of false alliance was marriages with Gentiles, with pagan peoples, because that brought into ancient Israel the, the religions of these pagan you know, spouses. So it corrupted Israel. And I think that's an issue that's extremely important today. I mean, marriage is in monstrous crisis. We all know that. And part of the reason, part of it, among other things, is that people aren't marrying well because they don't care so deeply about their faith. They're willing to marry anybody, and they marry anybody of any faith or no faith, and what happens? It just poisons families and has led to the poisoning of so much in the church. Amos 
this is, Amos did what Our Lady did at Fatima and also spoke about medicinal punishments. Okay? The chastisement from God is it's a punishment, but it's not meant to be simply punitive. It's always coupled with mercy so that it brings back the sinner. What does Ezekiel say? Um, chapter 30. God wishes not of the sinner, but that he converts and live. And that medicinal punishments are given for that reason. As evil as war is, God allows it for the sake of a greater good. Now, how could there be, how could you see that necessarily? It was very difficult. Some people would furiously, violently disagree with what I've said if God is good. What is the greater good you see from World War One? I? I mean, the world just slid from bad to worse and then worse again since then. War brings, makes people rethink about God. We think about priorities. We think about prayer. It's sad. We wish we could do that without war. No one wants war. But weren't there sins of the flesh in the 1920s, especially? They called it the Roaring Twenties. You know, the sins of the flesh since Adam. <laughs> but uh, no, but I know what you're saying, and it's correct. The sexual revolution didn't begin in the 60s. Well, when did it begin? It began in Eden. But um, but reality is, the modern day explosion was really a post World War One phenomenon. Yeah. Um, cons- okay, message as, read, as as I have said already, consolation and hope is a concern of the prophets. Isaiah is one example. And Elias, Jeremiah, and Zechariah talk about the, the uh, part of the message of hope that there will always be a remnant, and um, that's the same with the church. There will always be a remnant, as doom and gloom as it is. There will always be a remnant, and God is the one who who brings who, who is the cause of that. All right. Um, I've, We've already all well advanced. I won't go into, I'll just skip the bit here about the messianic hope because it's another topic in itself. There are hundreds of allusions that the prophets made to the, you know, the coming Messiah one day to identify the Messiah. Okay? Uh, Amos 9, the Lord will raise up the hut of David. Isaiah 7, the Messiah shall be born of a virgin. Isaiah 11, he will be the root of Jesse. Micah 5, the Messiah shall be born in Bethlehem. Jeremiah 31, the new and everlasting covenant. Where do we hear those words today? That's right. That's right. Where did he say it first of all? The Last Supper. This is the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. Shed for you and for many through the remission of everything. Right now, um, the new and everlasting covenant... That's the, that's the sixth covenant of Jesus Christ. That is the one, the final covenant that, res, that is meant to restore all universal in the sense that it's for all people now. Um, and it's the final covenant because there, there's going to be no other greater than Christ. Mm. And But the essential core of the covenant is the same as the others. You know, restoring humanity into the family with God. God is... I am your God, you are my people. And now, who are the people? It's not just going to be the Hebrews or the Jews. Uh, Zechariah, so Ezekiel 34, there will appear a new shepherd and flock. Ze- Zechariah 9, the Prince of Peace enters Jerusalem 
on the back of a donkey. Malachi 11, the sacrifice of the Gentiles, uh, it's, it's in every place from the going down of the sun to its rising up again. And Daniel 7, the son of man, who um, actually prophesied specifically about the ascension of the son of man and his enthronement at the right hand of the father. And there, um, and there are so many more prophecies. There's, again, a couple of talks in those prophecies alone. All right. The scribes were a subset, and they were made up. The scriptures put the scribes together with the Pharisees. You often hear, when you read scripture, it says, the scribes and the Pharisees. You've all heard that, right? The scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were a subset of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, just to put it clear here, Ricciotti helped me to clear up the scene. The high priest, Caiaphas, Annas, his father-in-law, they were not Pharisees. They were Sadducees. The Sadducees were the priestly class. The Pharisees were professional theologians who were essentially laymen. And the scribes were a specialist class of Pharisees who were in... Um, I have to reread this. I, I, I'm not sure if the scribes were just Pharisees. They could have been Sadducees as well. I'm not sure. But they were primarily a subset of the Pharisees who were tra- trained themselves to be wrote memorized. The scribes, they wrote the scriptures. They copied them. They also memorized them. And it was an extremely rigorous discipline, art form, and we we don't have, it's very hard for us in the modern context to have an appreciation of the seriousness of this art form, because we're not like that anymore. We are a visual and audio people. We, we don't engage in rote learning to that extent anymore. Uh, we shy away from it. We disdain it. It's too hard. It's a mental anguish. We, we want to just see things on television and listen to things on radio. And we might do a bit of reading here or there of some cheap novel on the train. Okay. So what is oh. learning except tradition? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. tradition. Rote, rote learning would be of the text of scripture specifically, but also of oral tradition. Okay, and they were side by side. The Pharisees were considered heretics by the Sadducees because the Sadducees were very sola scriptura. They only would accept the written text. Okay, they didn't go into the elaborate, um, uh, yeah, development of. I'm trying to get the word here. I keep forgetting this word. But, you know, the, the Pharisees went more into developing a system of interpretation on how to apply the written law in various situations. Okay? Um, and they developed the oral traditions side by side with the written law. Now, some of those oral traditions were fine. And the Sadducees were wrong to just throw out the baby with the bathwater and get rid of all oral traditions. But some of these oral traditions were very dangerous and were condemned by Christ when you read about them in Scripture. Okay? The Phar- on the other hand, the Pharisees considered the Sadducees as heretics because they denied certain beliefs, like that belief in angels, belief in the resurrection of a body. Because for them, the Sadducees 
I don't know about angels, I think that's quite clear, but the concept of resurrection of the body is not necessarily so clear in Scripture. And one could argue against that as well, for example. Like the book of Job has a reference that could be used against that idea. Okay? And then you had others like the Samaritans who just stuck with the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay? And didn't accept any other writings like the prophetic writings or the um, historical or poetic writings. And, um, so it was all divided, unfortunately, like, you know, in a similar way to today. All right, um, let's have a look here. I won't go on for too much longer. I'll just give you a brief rundown about one example of a great prophet like Jeremiah, and then I'll just conclude with um, the point I'm trying to make in tonight's talk. Okay. Now, Jeremiah is one of my favourite prophets. Uh, he's probably the saddest of the prophets and the one that most you know, scholars say uh, reflects the life of Christ. Okay. Now, when... Preceding the time of Jeremiah, seventh um, century BC. If, you, if I had a map, I should put it in the context of what was happening in the world at the time. The predominant power in the world was the Assyrian Kingdom, which is modern-day, you know, Mesopotamia, you know, Iraq, Syria, extended a little bit into Asia Minor, conquered Lebanon. Um, and it also went into Egypt and conquered Egypt, the Assyrian kingdom. They were ruthless. They were like the Nazis of the 7th century BC, and their capital was Nineveh. And they had completely demolished the northern kingdom, as I said already. Now, they were in the ascendancy, and Judah was surviving there, miraculously. What happened, though, is that Judah had a terrible king named Manasseh. It was a total disaster. Fifty to sixty years of, a, of abominable rule, and all evils grew in Judah at this time. Corruption, um, Baal worship, child sacrifice. And Manasseh even sacrificed his own son yeah, in, in, a, in a pagan ritual. Now, Isaiah, so Jeremiah was called in this period when Manasseh was king. Most of the kings of Israel were disasters. Well, you read the, like, the history of the kings of Israel, it's one catastrophe after another. And it makes you realise that you know, these were the people of God. This was the church at the time. And it helps you to just feel a little bit more consoled that me personally, it's a personal comment, that with the corruption in the church today, again, it's nothing new under the sun. It's sad, but it's true, and we've seen it before, and we'll sadly see it again, and it's always God will take, call the remnant and the elect in the midst of the rubble. All right, anyway, what happens eventually, to cut a bit of a long story short, Manasseh actually converts before he dies. But it was a little bit too too little, too late. And Judah was heavily entrenched in these evil ways, you know, pagan temples and altars all around the place. And yet the Gehenna, the valley of um, where we get the word Gehenna, 
that's where the child sacrifice was taking place. Was that with the mo- Yeah, and that's where they had the pit of burning sulfur all the time. That's why Christ called hell that word. You know, to, to, to relate. The analogy is with that valley. Okay, now anyway, so Manasseh has a conversion before he dies. Isaiah, so Jeremiah's prophetic mission continues. I mean, he was an 18 year old man. He was a man, I can't call him a boy. 18 year olds are still boys today, but in that society they were men. You were a man when you were 13. Okay, they didn't have this nonsense called teenager. Okay, they just went straight into it. They could, uh, uh, when they could read the Torah, that's it, you're a man. Boom. Of course, Jeremiah could gain very no headway in the time of Manasseh. The succeeder to Manasseh was a great king called Josiah. Now, Josiah was, was faithful and loyal, and he formed an alliance with Jeremiah. And this was an exciting period in the history of Judah. It seemed like they're going to clean up. It's this great reform movement in Judah. It's sort of like having a great pope and a great Catholic king working together to clean up Europe, you know. And there was six real success here. They were smashing pagan altars, you know, expelling pagan priests, and abandoning marriage with pagan women. You know, it was great, you know. But they were having success, but at the same time, these evils were still very heavily entrenched. So the success was limited. Josiah was motivated primarily because there were renovations in the temple being conducted. And in the year 622, they found in a niche in the wall a copy of the book of Deuteronomy. They didn't have that book. It had gone missing. Uh, they knew about it, but they hadn't had it for centuries, the book of Deuteronomy. And when Isaiah read it, he was aghast. He said these words, Great is the wrath of the Lord, because our fathers have not obeyed this book. This is the king, Josiah. Okay? Uh, so we have acceleration of reforms, purification of the temple, destruction of pagan shrines. Now what's happening now, this is all well and good. This is a happy time in Israel for yeah, quite a few years. What happens? The geopolitical situation outside of Judah is changing rapidly. There is a revolt in Babylon against Assyria. And this begins around the year 616 BC. And by the year 606 BC, Babylon, like a cancer within Assyria, has demolished the Assyrian kingdom from within. One major battle after that. There were occasions when the Assyrians fought back and would defeat the Babylonians, but they didn't stop their relentless drive of consuming the Assyrian kingdom from within. Well, Babylon is more like Iraq and Assyria or Nineveh is, is northern Iraq, you know, um, where the Kurds are today, that region. You know, they're, still, they're still in the, the, in the, in the belt of the Tigris-Euphrates River, but Babylon was further south, okay, like where Baghdad is, around there. Okay? Now, um, why is this important? Well, Egypt manages to break free from Assyria and uh, Judah is emboldened as well 
uh, you know, because Syria is falling apart. But what happens? Egypt also sees the opportunity to reconquer the part of the Mediterranean coast of Israel and Lebanon, which they used to have. So they, 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 their king at the time, King Necho, leads an army of Egyptians to reconquer. Now, the, the Judeans weren't going to accept this, so their king, Josiah, led an army, which was a small army, against this much larger Egyptian army, and they met at Megiddo, which is the word which forms the basis of Armageddon. Armageddon the Battle of Armageddon has already happened. It happened at Megiddo in 609 BC. Well, there, there, wasn't a, a, there was already a battle at Megiddo, okay? Um, and the terrible thing is that Josiah is killed in this battle. And the Egyptians conquered Judea and they set up a puppet king named Jehoiakim. Now, under Jehoiakim, all the abominations of Manasseh return. And poor old Jeremiah is left hanging with no political support anymore. And he makes this prophecy against Judah and the temple. Amend your ways and your doings, and I will let you dwell in this place. You see? So there's hope here. This is the classical prophet. Warning, change or you're doomed. But if you do change, there's hope. Do not trust in the deceptive words, this is the temple of the Lord. And what Jeremiah was doing there, he was striking at the false court prophets. The court prophets are saying, but that, you know, King Jehoiakim, don't listen to this crazy man, Jeremiah. He's saying that the Jerusalem and the temple is going to be destroyed. They're never going to be destroyed. How can you destroy the temple? Yahweh dwells in the temple. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And one day, one day, Jeremiah came up before the king, Jehoiakim, with his secretary, Baruch. And um, they, handed, they handed a written text of warnings, prophetic warnings, to the king. And as Jeremiah is reading them, Jehoiakim is just disdainfully just stripping them one and throwing it in the fire. With total contempt for what Jeremiah was saying. Then Jeremiah warned Jehoiakim and made the great prophecy of the 70 years. You will be destroyed. Jerusalem will be destroyed. Judah will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed and you're all going to be taken as prisoners into Babylon. And you'll be there for 70 years. Well, that didn't help Jeremiah's cause. (laughs) Trust me. He he, He had to flee for his life. And, of course, he was up against the false prophets who were optimistic and saying, don't worry about this lunatic. Well, anyway, again, cutting the story short, there was a, the, the Babylonians launched a first assault on Judah in 597 and they deported 30,000 Jews to Babylon. And But they didn't destroy Jerusalem. They didn't destroy Judah. They made it a vassal state under certain conditions in the peace truce. Anyway, the, Babylon, the Judeans were still restless and agitating for a revolt against Babylon. What was, what was Jeremiah doing at this time? He was actually engaged in further very unpopular prophecy. He was saying, don't revolt against Babylon. If you revolt against Babylon, you will be destroyed. Accept Babylon's, accept being the vassal state of Babylon. 
do not enter into peace treaties with anyone, especially Egypt. Egypt is the crocodile. They will not help. They will betray all of us and we will be destroyed. Okay, so Jeremiah is more unpopular than ever. Well, the king never listened and so a second revolt broke out against Babylon in 594 BC. By the time this revolt was over, in 587 BC, all the alliances that Judah had formed fell apart. Egypt never came to Jerusalem's rescue. And the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar came and did exactly what Jeremiah had predicted. They swallowed up Judah. Then this time they were much, much more ferocious. They were rather benign the first time round. And they are not as ruthless traditionally as the Assyrians were. But this time there was no mercy. And they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. Now Ezekiel, as prophet, was already in, in Babylon. He was there since 597, the first deportation. He saw in a vision that the, 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 the Shekinah Kabod, the glory of the Lord, leave the Holy of Holies and then go and rest on Mount Olivet, and then ascend into heaven from Mount Olivet. The temple was abandoned by God. The Babylonians burnt it and destroyed it utterly, took the ark, likewise it was lost. Well, one tradition said Jeremiah hid it. It's never been found. Okay, 90,000 Judeans were taken prisoner and sent into exile into Babylon. The Babylonians set up a puppet governor in Judea, who was then assassinated. That didn't help. The Babylonians were more ruthless again after that. Um, with a third deportation in 582 BC, they let Jeremiah go. Nebuchadnezzar ordered that Jeremiah be let go because he was, they, the Babylonians considered Jeremiah as on their side. Because what was Jeremiah saying? That revolt, that revolt, that revolt against Babylon. You'll be destroyed. So he, he, didn't, he wanted to stay in Jerusalem, but he was forced to go into Egypt by a group of Judeans who were not taken prisoner. Jeremiah warned them, if you go to Egypt, you will be killed. They didn't listen, and they dragged Jeremiah with them into Egypt, where, according to tradition, they, they killed Jeremiah in Egypt. And those people never returned anyway. They died themselves, as Jeremiah had foretold. So... Um, that's, you can see there that, yeah, before he was killed, Jeremiah, his last series of prophecies were to the Judeans to, guess what? Don't plan to come back to Jerusalem. Stay where you are. Settle down. Have families. Go into businesses. But stay faithful because you're not coming back for 70 years, I assure you. Okay? And... Uh, whether they listened to him or not, that all came to pass. So when you look at Jeremiah, the, one of the greatest prophets, no doubt, he fits the mould, doesn't he? He faced the reality. He was not a false optimist, though he was resisted by the false prophets who were optimists. He preached doom and gloom. People didn't want to listen to him, but he preached it, a very unpopular message. 
there was a message to warn them to reform. If they were to reform, they would be spared. They didn't reform, and they were destroyed. So, he avoided the pessimism, but he avoided the, the, the despair. There's always hope in what Jeremiah said. The hope was initially, if you return to the covenant, you will be spared. And even when they were destroyed, his words were still hopeful, that you will return, one way or another. Yahweh will bring you back to Jerusalem. Um, and just to finish off, that we must apply the same principles today. I'm emphatic about that. When you, I get on the CAF News website every day and, and get into the scrum and the, 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 the brawling of the people who write letters to the editor and that all the time. I go under my own name and I go under other names as well if I want to put more than one comment. And uh, uh, you see false prophets there too. You see optimists there. People who think that since the, in the post-Vatican II times, things are great. You know, the, the, empty, the, the destroyed religious orders, the empty seminaries, the priestless parishes, the schools that don't teach the Catholic faith, the universities that are revolt, they're all a sign of the times. They're all a sign of the spirit moving in another direction. Well, these are the false prophets. It's one form of false prophet. These people are applauding Obama and his... And his um, I'm touching on what Scott would have spoken about tonight, no doubt. Um, they applaud Obama as, as a prophetic figure. He's been described as prophetic by letters to the editor on CAF News. He's a prophet. That's only because he's got a good speech writer, isn't it? I wouldn't even say that. But um, <laughs> I wouldn't concede that. But these people are false prophets putting forward and supporting the great false prophet of our modern time. So the true prophet today should you know, continue to focus on people like Obama and what's really the real situation in the church. So we avoid the, the false optimism and the false prophets who preach that. But I want to also warn not to fall for a solution that will, is more, does more harm than good. The solution of, okay, let's get, look, you're wasting our time. Just you know, turn your back and you know, flee for the hills mentality. You know, I've encountered opinions where you know, uh, where we, we were told that we shouldn't even live in Sydney. We should go into the remote countryside. That's the only way to protect our children and all that. We're we're, we're kidding ourselves. We're if we're exercising our egos if we think we can live in Sydney and do good works and apostolate and try and turn things around. This is the false despair. These people also say, I'll never send my child to go to the seminary or to university. One rang me once and said, I said, uh, this person has seven children, and I said, are you going to send any of your children to Campion College? And this person said, no, it's run by the Labour Party people. You're kidding me. I heard that. And all, all my children need are to be uh, tradesmen and get to heaven. Okay. He's entitled to have that opinion, especially about his children. But the reality is, if you translated that across the board, that would mean a, 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 an instant defeat and surrender. Might as well put up the white flag. 
because where are the future priests, bishops, lawyers, uh, technicians, scientists, you name it, economists, etc. Theologians going to come from? Yeah, well, but also let's be humble here. We're not going to win the victory. God's going to win the victory. And he does it in wonderful ways which are far beyond us. And we're not, and let's also take the point from Mother Teresa too. Does it really matter, matter whether we win or whether we just try our best and correspond generously with grace? This is what's important. So that's prophetic. Yeah, that's right. And um, the other point I was going to make just slipped my mind. Just while you're thinking of it. I probably won't. <laughs> it's not going to help me. Yeah, 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 yeah. While you're thinking of it, wouldn't you say that since the ascension of Blessed Lord, Our Lady has been the prophet to the world? It, yeah, to a great degree. That ordinarily, it is the church. Look, you're right, but ordinarily, it's the church, and you know that from the authentic Marian apparitions, because the authentic Marian apparitions never go against the church or legitimate authority. And that's one test for for determining authenticity with respect to Marian apparitions, isn't it, as we know. Because Our Lady always defers to the mystical body as being the ordinary instrument of salvation and prophecy and truth and hope and grace in the world. That's a fact. The point I was going to make was a minor one. You know, we don't need to flee to the hills to, to keep virtuous or to raise our children in virtue. We need to practice what the church says, which is to make temptation remote through custody of the senses. You know, I don't need to flee to the hills to avoid uh, you know, immoral billboards along Parramatta Road. I just practice custody of the senses. My children, as I'm teaching them, I'm not going to teach them to run to the hills to avoid temptation. I have to teach them to practice custody of the senses wherever they go and make uh, uh, temptations which are immediate to their presence that come to them through no fault of their own, to make it remote just by turning their heads or, you know, in a calmly and a blah, blah, blah. And I say this because this is another mantra of pessimists who say, you know, why do you live in Sydney? You know, you can't raise Catholic kids if you're in Sydney. That's, that's nonsense. It's a defeatist mentality that's going, that is hiding your light under the bushel yeah, exactly. and giving victory to the enemy on a, on a silver platter. That's what it is. And that's, that's what I want to say as our message today. Do fight where you're called, be realistic about the enemy, but be hopeful at the same time and work with the grace that God gives you. Thank you. That's right. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.